0: Last summer, we studied together the United Church of Christ's Statement of Faith, which includes the affirmation that God promises to all who trust forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace, courage in the struggle for justice and peace, the presence of God's Spirit in trial and rejoicing, and eternal life in that kingdom which has no end. This morning, as we continue our exploration of the Old Testament and the importance of covenant, I want us to really think about what it is that God promises us and how we receive those promises. We've already talked about Noah and Abraham, and this morning we will add another well-known Old Testament character, Joseph. We'll be in Genesis chapter 39, if you want to start turning there in your Bibles. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the pew, it's on page 64. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. Again, it's Genesis 39. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, so an heir of God's covenant promises of being blessed to be a blessing. Joseph is one of 12 sons born to Jacob, who is also known as Israel, and Joseph is the favorite. He knows it, and his father Jacob shows it. Joseph seems pretty blessed, but as a young man, Joseph is not very tactful. He has these symbolic dreams about his own greatness, and he's foolish enough to tell those dreams to his siblings. And understandably, they become jealous. In fact, they become so jealous that they kidnap their own brother, sell him into slavery, and tell their father that he's dead. And all of that happens in Genesis chapter 37. The rest of Joseph's story is the rest of the book of Genesis, another 13 chapters. This morning, as we think about covenant, We're going to read one episode from Joseph's life, chapter 39. Since it's a long story, we're not going to do the slides. I want you to just listen to the story. And again, if you'd like to follow along visually, you can use the Bibles that are in your pews. We're on page 64. This is Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar... An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down to Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with Joseph, and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar and attended him. Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him, there was no concern for anything but the food he ate, which should be his sweet wife. I just want to pause and say, as Americans, we have a very particular idea of what slavery is based on our own tragic history. But chattel slavery, the kind of slavery practiced in our history, was not the kind that was normally practiced in the ancient world. It was rare, if ever, that someone was enslaved for life with no chance of freedom. That's not what we're talking about in this section. So yes, Joseph was purchased. Yes, he's in servitude. But it's not an irrevocable situation. Just think that's important for us to keep in mind. Let's continue. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and said to his master's wife, "'Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, "'and he's put everything that he has in my hand. "'He is not greater in this house than I am.'" Apparently the bragging has not gone away. "'Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. "'How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God?' And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie with her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house, so it doesn't sound like he lives there is what I'm talking about with the slavery. One day when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, strangely enough, she caught a hold of his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant who you brought here among us came in to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Pause again. As an American woman in the 21st century, this story of a woman falsely accusing a man of sexual assault is so troubling to me. And I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on it but I also can't just let it go. So let me just say this. Who assaults whom and who gets accused and who gets away with it is not about gender. It is about power. When both folks are white Americans, The man will usually have more power, not just physical power, but social power. The system is structured to favor him. I'm not being insulting. You all know that's just the way it works. But in this story, we're not dealing with gender, but also with race and with wealth. And those take precedence over gender in this story. The woman has the power and is thus Both able to attempt an assault and also to level an accusation that is believed by everyone. When we read the Bible and in our own lives, we need to be very aware of who has the power and why. Let's continue. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him saying this is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Do you see how quickly they You see how quickly he believed the person with the power instead of the person without the power? And they put Joseph into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he remained there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, which is mercy, our word mercy. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The Lord blessed Joseph by giving him more responsibility. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. From strength to strength, may we be strengthened. Thanks be to God. Last week, we said that covenant is a sacred commitment to relationship, initiated by God for the sake of the other, which shapes our identity and our conduct. In covenant, belonging shapes behavior. Being in covenant with God and one another shapes how we choose to live. The relationship comes first. Covenant is about who we are and who we belong to. It is not a list of rules about what we will and won't do. That would be a contract. When we are thinking about God, it is very easy for us to start thinking in terms of contracts, even if we might say, oh no, that's not how I think about it. Let me give you an example of what I mean by contract thinking. See if this sounds familiar. If I pray the right prayer and or do the right religious works, God will let me into heaven. If I pay my tithe... God will give me plenty of money. If I pray hard enough or I have enough faith, God will heal my loved ones. If I live a good life, whatever that means, God will bless me. Part of the reason we think like this is because humans have always thought like this. Ancient humans believed that they had to please the fickle gods in order to get rain for their crops or victory in battle. We have always thought in terms of contracts, in terms of transactions. The other reason we believe this is because we have mixed up the gospel and the American dream. Individualism teaches that people earn whatever they have. So when we layer Christianity on top of that, we start believing that God gives us what we deserve. And then, understandably, we get very upset when we get something that we don't think we deserve. Please hear me very clearly. This is contract. This is transaction. This is not covenant. This is a cheap, and easy way for privileged people to explain God and it's wrong. Now here's where it gets sticky. There are some places in the Bible where it sounds like if we are good, God will be good to us. It's there. But it's not the only way the Bible talks about our relationship with God. The Bible says a lot of things. Some of those things sound opposite to each other. Remember that the Bible covers a huge span of time and a huge geographical area, so really it's up to us. We have to decide, even when we wrestle with the scriptures, are we going to trust in contract or are we going to trust in covenant? It is very easy to switch from contract to covenant because we always want to think in terms of what someone else is going to do for us and what we're going to do for them in return. Covenant encourages us to ask, why would we do those things? Not out of fear or punishment, not out of legal obligation, out of love. The relationship comes first. As we think about God's covenant promises, I just want to point out a few things. And I understand that what I'm about to say is hard. Because it pushes against our desire for health and wealth and our contract transaction theology. And even if we say we don't believe in a prosperity gospel, it's really hard to not feel that way when it's about us. But I believe this is the growing edge of our emotional and our spiritual awareness and our self-control. Because especially when things are hard, we need a faith that is deeper than contract. Because the things that happen in the world do not always make sense. We need a faith that is deeper than transaction. We need a faith that will carry us through suffering and deep questions. We need faith in God's covenant love for us. So let's think about covenant promises. First... In the flood story, I want you to see how this builds. In the flood story, God promises never to destroy us again. But God does not promise that we won't continue to destroy ourselves and our planet through our own willful corruption. I'm not saying we're inherently bad creatures. We are good. But we make real bad choices. And God does not promise to shield us From the consequences of our own actions. And God does not promise to shield other people from the consequences of our actions. We can do plenty of damage without God's help, and that is not God's responsibility, that is our responsibility. Second, God promises to bless Abraham and Sarah so that they will be a blessing. But God does not promise to keep others from cursing them. Do you remember that part? In fact, the covenant that God makes with Abraham and Sarah includes the reality that other people are going to curse them. The more we live in God's way, joining in the struggle for justice and peace, not fighting fire with fire because that doesn't work, loving our enemies the more we are likely to be cursed by others. God promises we will be blessed, but God does not promise that being a blessing will be easy. Third, God promises Abraham and Sarah a multitude of descendants, but they probably did not live to see their own grandchildren. God promises them that their descendants will have a land of their own, and when Abraham and Sarah die, they only own one tiny little plot of that land. God fulfilled the promises even though Abraham and Sarah never saw that fulfillment in their lifetime. Friends, God is writing a very long story, And even though we are the center of our own universes, God is working beyond our lifetimes. See how I said this was all coming together this morning? It is possible for God to be faithful and for us to not get what we want. Finally, God promises to be the God of all Abraham and Sarah's descendants, which by faith includes us. And this brings us to Joseph. Because for a while, Joseph has a pretty sweet life. He's pretty blessed, although it doesn't sound like he's much of a blessing to others. But then he's taken into Egypt, purchased, and put to work. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know the customs. He doesn't share the religion. And Genesis 39, verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. For a while... Things again go well enough, considering the circumstances. He even refuses to have sex with the mistress of the house because he says it would be a sin against God. He's trying to live the right way. Then he's falsely accused and thrown in jail. And Genesis 39, verse 21, all the way at the other end of the chapter says, But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love, Mercy, Friends, the hardest lesson is that it is possible for God to be with us, to be our God, to be faithful, to be keeping promises, and really awful things can still happen to us. We can do our best to follow God and still wind up in a no-win situation where we lose either way we go. That's what happened to Joseph. Didn't matter what he was going to do, he was going to lose. Following God, he still lost. God's unconditional commitment to us is not a guarantee of physical or financial security. The ultimate example of God's covenant love demonstrated in Jesus is that God can redeem anything. There is nothing that can happen to us that is so awful that God cannot bring something good out of it. That does not mean that God caused it. It means that our infinitely creative and loving God can make something beautiful out of it, even if we do not live to see it. Now, it is natural for us to want safety and security for ourselves and our loved ones. God's word tells us that when all things have been restored, there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more tears. Thanks be to God. So when we pray for healing and peace, we are praying in line with God's ultimate intention for creation. We should pray for healing. We should pray for peace. The ninja level Christianity is to believe that God is still at work still loving, still faithful to God's covenant, still with us being our God, even when we don't get it. God never leaves us alone in our suffering. God leads us in community so that we can be a blessing to one another, to remind one another of God's ultimate goodness, to encourage one another to in fact be God to one another in that moment. We both experience and extend God's covenant love with us when we live in covenant with one another. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano this morning, I want to give you a few minutes to kind of just let this sink in. God is still with us, being our God, and bad things happen all things in the world are still held in God and there are wars I understand that God feels absent sometimes God feels absent to me sometimes which my telling you that God is still there is kind of condescending for how you're feeling right now, if that's where you are. But if you would let me say it to you pastorally, or maybe just believe it on your behalf, that God is not absent. God has not left you. God has not forgotten you. I would venture to say you are not being punished. God may be pruning something in you. That's different from punishment. So would you take a moment to just, however it works for you, let God be with you this morning. say a closing prayer. Ever-present love, we know you are with us. Send us into the world to be your people and we'll know that you're at work in us and through us.